Hello, hello, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. That was very good. Uh, American National Public Radio voice. We are here to talk today about things that matter. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs> Just listen to the sound of this voice and all your money will disappear. As will your problems. Have you, have you ever heard of um, Have you ever heard of this thing called ASMR? Mm -mm. It's a What's weird that? internet thing where people uh, listen to sounds like tapping or typing on keys, or like soft whispering or things like that to help them. The relentless clicking in the background of every episode of everything that Nicholas Lorimer shoots. Yes, precisely. The, the smooth um, cadence. The right. There's, it's, so it's like this whole, drum. there's this whole weird sub genre on, on the internet. Uh, you can find it on YouTube of like, usually it's like a pretty girl typing on a keyboard and the microphone is set really sensitive. Um, or it's a video of an old Japanese man making paper and just the sound of the paper going. Shuk, shuk. Anyway. Hmm. Your uh, your voice there and the NPR voice you were doing there was just perfect for that genre. For the it's like to bask in the quotidian. Yeah, someone uh, putting someone putting it next to their bed as they fall asleep and just listening to it. It's like white noise. It's like hmm. fancy white noise. Dude, that um, was that's anyway. that, I've, I've got to admit that was a, a huge part of the seduction of Victor Davis Hanson for me. Yes, yes. No, he's he's got a good voice. So soporific. Um, it's it's amazing it's uh, having a good voice is 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 quite spectacular um but anyway so today we're going to talk about i think the opposite of asmr which is a uh, war <laughs> yeah it's not and, the soft um, sounds of keyboard clicking it's the it's it's the screams and cries of and, yeah and of death yeah. destruction and chaos and um what prompted us to talk about this is just this, all sorts of conflicts going around the world right now, which some of them are getting a little bit covered. But um, And let me start off with a, a starting proposition, and you can respond to it. I think that the world has forgotten how important war is as something that can actually change the political balance. So we've been stuck in this, in this world where, as, as Obama said when um, Putin annexed Crimea, uh, you know, this isn't the 19th century anymore. You can't just take over land. <laughs> well, as it turns out, you can. <laughs> um, and the world, is, particularly the media, doesn't seem to know really how to report on, on, on military conflict anymore because we're so used to, especially between great powers, uh, there being no none of these kind of brute force conflicts anymore. It's more fought in the political arena. I mean, that's definitely fair to say about Afghanistan, right? When Al-Qaeda set off a bomb um, at a marine base or the Taliban sent a suicide bomber into a marketplace, the objective wasn't to destroy the American military or the Afghan military. The objective was to, was to create a talking point on CNN. And create a talking point on CNN and get them to withdraw their soldiers. Get the keyboards to but, Exactly. But we're starting to see the return of the old brute force. And there's a number of ways in which this is kind of playing out. One is in Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, um, where a kind of very weird but interesting form of war is being fought. Uh, the South China Sea, where the Chinese are constantly flying sorties of aircraft and developing new technologies. And in Ethiopia, where the government and the Tigrayan rebels are are fighting at what it, what seems to be a very proper, uh, not not a guerrilla campaign, but like and a, an actual yeah, conventional war. Yeah, it's become. I think what's interesting about Ethiopia is that what started out as last year as like a bit of a separatist movement that looked like it'd be put down. Mainly, it was like a humanitarian crisis, like so, gangsters being thrubbed. Now yeah. it looks like an existential war. Like commentators that I respect are starting to consider the possibility 
of Addis Ababa being besieged by the Tigrayan forces of Abiy Ahmed not being able to muster like you know half of the divisions apparently have been routed uh not being able to hold the morale and then seeing a capital of a serious economy that's been growing in double digits for over a decade uh led by a man who recently got a Nobel gong for peace see that actually being taken over um right. it's extra it's extraordinary uh at any time it, it's extraordinary to to sort of see that shift but i think that especially with that background that you lay of uh the the sort of the long peace really starting after world war ii but then really after the collapse of the soviet union and the and the flare-ups around that um in the last while outside of the middle east it's it's unusual for brute force to strike through. I do think that you're right to say that we, we become unaccustomed to it. And I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've been picking up this pluck of, of like citing Machiavelli. So let me do it again. Um, <laughs> well, it's good when you're talking about conflict. He said, it's one thing to be feared. It's another thing to be respected. And ideally you want to be both. And it's, a, it's, a, it's I think that idea people have become very detached from. Um, in my own person, you know, the, the other, other side of it is, is just crime in South Africa. I think we all know what it means to try and make money by making a product or a service that someone wants and then selling it to them willingly. And also to try and make money by threatening or using force and then taking someone else's money. Um, we also, I certainly know what it's like to be afraid of the cops, uh, which you know, can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what you're doing. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, when I was like 17, trying to smoke a joint outside. Actually, I didn't do that when I was 17, when I was 18, uh, in the park. And then you see, you're like, oh, what's going on? Um, it's probably good to be a bit afraid of that, actually, because it's the law. Uh, but sometimes it's not so great because, I, you know, all my stuff was stolen once and the cops took me for a drive around town and it ended up being a bit of a shakedown. Uh, so, so I think we have a sense of it here, but I think when it comes to large organized armies, really breaking the state's monopoly on violence and then seizing it and creating a new monopoly on violence and, right. and, and uh, taking power, even though they don't have better ideas and they're not more popular and they're not more anything. Um, and force your weapon. That's, that's, that's a, that's an old, old thing, but it, it's, it's probably never going to go away. It's certainly... Not going away right now. When was the last time? So I think that our current round started when ISIS almost conquered Iraq in 2013, around there. Yeah, uh, and 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 only intervention by uh, <laughs> a weird combination of Iran, America, and France, uh, and the Kurds managed to prevent the Iraqi government from collapsing uh, to ISIS. And then we've seen another one recently where, of course, Afghanistan fell, as we talked about on the show, to the Taliban. And uh, just an update on that, the Taliban are behaving exactly as we predicted they would. Um, yeah. But that's, yeah. Yeah, I think there's... Chopping heads serious. off, just being yeah. as beastly as you can imagine. Um, anyway, so but we, I think we definitely have entered a new a new sphere where these things are coming back. Uh, the sight of you know soldiers marching down the center of a capital of a foreign capital is not is not beyond the realms of possibility um, as it was in say two thousand and three. Yeah, yeah. So, although in two thousand and three, isn't that exactly the year where the Americans walk through? Yeah, but they didn't do a they didn't do a victorious military parade declaring that Iraq was now the fifty first state, and <laughs> you know it's a little bit different from, like, if the Tigrayans take over Addis Ababa, they're probably going to say, "Ah, you see, we're back in power now, but guys, it's time for us to, you know, redeclare ourselves the government of Ethiopia or to declare our, our city independent, and that we're annexing northern Ethiopia or something like that." Um, same with the Taliban, right? They held victory parades and drove around in, in Hiluxes, waving flags and shooting at people once they took over Kabul. So I think I think it's a little bit different from these kind of um, interventions. That's the same with ISIS, right? When ISIS 
took over Mosul in uh, northern Iraq. They drove around the streets and declared it now part of the Islamic Caliphate and that uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is now, you know, the leader, the head of state of the city of Mosul. Yeah. So, so I want to say something about Ethiopia. Let's start there in terms of these new ones because it is the most obviously like old-fashioned war. Here's what's troubling. Um, well, okay. First, let me say what 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 uh, 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 a recent prompt conversation is. So Tyler Cohen is a really good dude to check out. He is, I think, the head of the Hayek program, Mercatus. He he's a top prof at George Mason University. He does some YouTube videos that have got like millions of hits. He's sort of got a very soft spoken manner and is quite a sweetie. Uh, he I would say that he's a I would say that he's a radical centrist. Um, he is definitely not a lefty and definitely not like a Trumpkin. Um, he is anyway, I think he's a really good dude. He was on the Goodfellows podcast this week. Uh, which is the Hoover Institute, Niall Ferguson, uh, John Cochran, and H.R. McMaster. Uh, and these are all figures whose books we've read. And, and well, in the case of Cochran, I've just read some of his articles. Um, but they're, 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 they're good. They're, they're, you know, center, center right, uh, Hoover Institute fellows. So they have this format where you have like three people plus a moderator. And then sometimes they bring a guest on. So it's like a lot to 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 contend with if you're the guest because it's only an hour long and they all speak over each other and it's quite dense and they've got quite contrasting views actually uh, despite all belonging to a relatively similar part of the political spectrum. And so the guests sometimes have to mission to get their way through. So at one stage, Cohen is Professor Cohen is struggling to get it in there. So he's like, okay, guys, let me ask you a question. What do you make of the situation in Ethiopia? And he has the problem statement. Uh, they Their economy was growing at above 10% for over a decade. Uh, they've got a new, like, kind of non-racial, good peacemaking uh, president on the back right. of, like, and, a and, peaceful and election. And also, just to say that Ethiopia is not, uh, it's not like some irrelevant backwater. It's not like, a, I don't know, Burundi or Gabon. It has 100 million people more than. It's got a it's, massive population. It's huge, dude, and it's been one of the most advanced, like so, like you know, states in in Africa. wasn't colonized. For a very long it's interesting through fair. It's a very interesting place, very significant place. And so he says, you know, he has the problem statement like one economic, one uh, political economy model has it that uh, as people get a little bit more wealthy, they're less inclined to to be warlike so what's going on there so hr mcmaster's comeback is like the weakest he's like you know they've just always had these tribalism issues which is basically in other words for saying racist and on my definition of race that's just what it is the omara the tigray the amara um uh, uh, i always struggle to say it probably the amara and the oromo Romo, Sidamo, Tigray, Afar, Harari, and Hamara, and there some Somalis as well. <laughs> yeah, and and so they, you know, they've had beef with each other for a very long time, and so and know. and the state was set up along explicitly sort of racial lines, right? So it used to be ruled by the Tigrayan People's Front, uh, which are one of the sides in this war now, and they organized Ethiopia with them being on the top as a sort of racial elite. Uh, kind of a little bit like a, an apartheid state sort of thingy, and then yeah. they divided the the government's pro the the country's provinces into ones that were roughly corresponding little, to where the ethnic groups live. So there's like an Oromo province and yeah. and uh, Amhara province. Um, so the state is very explicitly divided along racial lines. So McMaster's thesis: race is going to be racist, but that doesn't precisely doesn't fit with the thought that racist is going to be racist until people start making more money and then people are going to kind of get along. It also doesn't jive very well with what 
scant reports we have on the ground in 2019, where people did seem to be relatively jolly. Okay. So then another theory coming from um, uh, Niall Ferguson is that you need to make the historical comparison to Yugoslavia, which was kind of the richest so Soviet satellite state. Um, well, it wasn't really a Soviet satellite state. It was communist, but it wasn't in the Soviet exactly, satellite block. which is why it was kind of the richest. Tito wasn't all down with that. He was the friendliest with free markets, so they were doing relatively better than everyone else. And so there was more money being made, and that's fine. Um, but as soon as there was a bit of a problem, uh, you you have a bunch of people uh, uh, re reverting back to, to old ideas. John Cochran kind of puts it together a little bit with this nice theory, which is it's a sort of, you know, it's the kind of thing that a lot of uh, more limited government oriented, you know, more libertarian oriented economists uh, observe about America, which is when when the when the advantages of occupying central government are extremely limited, you can get to the point where people don't really care. But then you let the economy grow and the state centralize and become a real thing. And suddenly the advantages of occupying the White House or the union buildings or whatever it is become considerable. And so people invest more money. And so in America's context, this is an argument about campaign spending. You know, what do you do about the fact that billionaires are, you know, this is an existential problem for democracy, inequality. You can make all kinds of arguments about why it's terrible. You can make all kinds of arguments by why it's great because it incentivizes economic growth, which eventually lifts all ships. But then the problem is you've got these very, very rich people who are using all their money to bend elections and, and effectively bribe politicians and so on. And that seems to subvert the democratic process. And the pushback is, well, if you just limited taxation, limited regulation, if you made it not that interesting to occupy the central executive, right. then those guys if would Washington have less reason have to power. try and fight for it. Exactly. 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 The stakes would be lower. And so, you know, you wouldn't have to bribe a politician to make sure that you got your guy in or, or fund a politician's campaign um, because your business wouldn't be under threat of being regulated into the dust. If, uh, yeah. Or, if or, getting, wins. Or, or getting a huge advantage if the right side wins, you know, being protected from all kinds of competitors and so on. So... So he's like, you know, so maybe that's the case. Like, you know, suddenly it's become really important. And so it becomes really important for the Tigrayans to opt out of it. And Cohen is like, you know, Cohen says, then H.R. McMaster says, okay, you know, you, you, you're kind of have, you're pointing out problems with all of these views. One of them being that the advantage of the centralized state aren't that asymmetrical, you know, 10 years ago versus now. Uh, the, you know, holding Addis Ababa hasn't really changed the fiscal flows all that much. The kinds of social safety net grants that are going out, the regulations haven't been, you know, asymmetrically applied in ways that specifically disadvantage Tigrayans or business leaders that are in Tigray. So, oh, and by the well, way, there, there has been a the little bit of that, right? Because the Tigrayans did literally dominate the government, like, enormously, despite making up, you know, sort of 7% of the population. That's why I, I said apartheid state earlier. So this is a... And I think they didn't get into this nearly enough. The point is that the apartheid comparison is maybe too much, but the kind of BEE today comparison is pretty good. Yeah. If you imagine yeah. BEE was for a minority uh, and it, it was very strongly applied in the public sector, that's exactly how it was in Ethiopia. If you wanted... If you look at the stats on, on senior management, middle management level... Uh, public service, civil service sector workers. They're huge. They're, it's like majority Tigray, even though they're they're a small minority. And from there, the contracts, uh, the tenders that get put out. Are, so when my understanding is that Abiy Ahmed comes in and he doesn't change that in the sense of uh, flipping the script and being like, now we won't be either other way. He changes that in the sense that he's like, no, now we're going for merit. And he does the same thing in his army. But that is going to irritate the Tigrayans. Okay, so I think that there are arguments, you know, I think these models do something, but I really liked Cohen's point, which was that his Bayesian update, you know, preserving some of the data, saying that some of the modeling still works. But his Bayesian update is luck probably has a little bit more to do with it than the, the models at the moment are taking into account. 
Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> and that just felt like exactly what my line on Ethiopia has been, but but in a, but in a crystal way. Because my line on Ethiopia has been that in a way I thought the high water mark of civilization in Africa in the latest round was like February 2020 when Abi had just won the Nobel Prize. Ethiopia's economic growth was doing so well that the disgruntlement of the, of those cadres who are now undeployed was, was kind of not sparking any fires. Uh, and there's a, a, a gathering of African leaders in Addis Ababa, which is, you know, kind of an AU consort. But this is like an extraordinary unofficial meeting of, of the AU in a way. And there is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo making a speech celebrating a, uh, Abiy Ahmed and denouncing or warning South Africa against expropriation without compensation to the nods of a whole bunch of African leaders. And... The, you know, just the footage of Ramaphosa landing at the airport and being picked up by a bee in a, in a bucky, effectively, with, with <laughs> yes, it's the Ethiopian... old-fashioned, right, yeah. uh, uh, kind of stereotype about Africa where they show up in 15 million cars and it goes on. Yeah, so that's how, that's how Ramaphosa goes America. to the airport in Joburg, but when he gets picked up on the other end, uh, it's this like very unostentatious, this like ostentatiously humble kind of thing. And it really reminded me of the description of the first time Ram uh, uh, Mugabe and Mandela met. Mugabe had been the great star of Africa. Zimbabwe had become, you know, a great place for education. Mugabe himself got several PhDs when he was in prison. It was like he was the star of post-colonial Africa. He had managed to avoid kind of Cold War nightmares like in Angola and Mozambique and uh, resource nightmares like in the DRC and just general squalor like in Nigeria and, and, and mafia state nonsense like Nigeria and Somalia and so on. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was doing really well. But when he met Mandela, and I think this line maybe was said by – it was either said by Mandela or by Mugabe. He said, the star was there, but then the sun came out. <laughs> and and this is how it seemed. It's like Ramaphosa's star was really falling. Ramaphoria was kind of wearing off because he was talking a bunch of nonsense, unfortunately. And he was visiting an African head of state who was being truly celebrated by the world for really good reasons. And in the gentlest and most profound way, getting a bit of a criticism, which I thought was, was lining us up really well uh for a good change and then the next month we had the first march against ewc in amgeni municipality and i thought you know we can trigger a bit of a, a a war of words in the sunday papers and then maybe get like a little small march going on in Joburg, a couple of thousand people and then see if that takes off and like maybe we can put ewc to bed and really do this in like a sweet democratic way that will incentivize the anc to do the best it can do and open up the democratic space. It just felt like a good moment. Uh, it felt like really good diplomacy coming from the Americans and and that it was being done in a way that the Europeans would follow, that our, our should-be allies in, in South Korea and uh, the civilized parts of the East would follow, and so on and so forth. And yet, and yet it all suddenly went wrong because coronavirus struck and this shattered the trade relations between Ethiopia and the first world that were part of what was driving its economic growth. And so suddenly you have a bit of a squeeze. And suddenly that, I think, emboldens the, the so, enemies of progress. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that's all of it. I don't want to say this is the stroke of bad luck that makes all of the difference, COVID and lockdown. I think that it takes more than that. But it is an exogenous factor, as economists would say. Yeah, that's definitely that's makes things really, worse. That's modeled in. Um, I, uh, so I believe that according to the Ethiopian government version of how the conflict starts, and they have a much better line to the media, so, uh, you know, we hear a lot more from, from their side. So this, I haven't really heard the Tigrayan version of the story too much. Basically, they say the conflict starts like this. The Tigrayans say, you're interfering, interfering with our uh, sort of federal rights. The central government says no. Um, you guys are crazy, you're exaggerating, you're being hysterical, then the Tigrayans decide to postpone their local government election in the province, 
or they no, they decide to go ahead with it. Sorry, and the central government says, okay, but we just postponed them all because of COVID. I think that was the the reasoning. Right. They said, no, 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 we're doing it anyway. And then there was a Which lot of talk, and uh, probably yeah. the right choice given how little viral yes. load Ethiopia's <laughs> ever had. Uh, so, so then, then uh, the the Ethiopian PM was like, "Look, everyone, calm down. We're not going to force you to hold elections. Let's not get all excited." Then something happened at an Ethiopian military base in the Tigrayan region, and according to the Ethiopian government, the uh, Tigrayans basically ambushed the soldiers in that base and massacred them. And that set off the Ethiopian invasion of Tigray province, which appears to have been aided by the ancient enemy of the Tigrayans. And I'm, when I say ancient, I mean going back to at least the 90s, the Eritreans, uh, who who seem to have taken the opportunity to invade the Tigrayan area, which is on the border with them in northern Ethiopia, and commit some atrocities against the civilian population there. Uh, something which was denied very fiercely by the Ethiopian government, but... Uh, I've seen other sources say that indeed it did happen like that, which is quite disturbing. Yeah, um, and I think that really hurt the prestige of the Ethiopians because you know another country had basically invaded them on their side to help them against their own people. Yeah, it's not a good look. <laughs> not a good look. It's really not a good look. Yeah, and and I understand from a military perspective. You know, what's the old line? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, we've just opened a conflict against a Tigrayan separatist movement. We don't mind the support. But on the other hand, the citizen of my country is my first call of honor and duty for defense. And that seems to have been a bit smushed. I worry, I mean, one of the lines I've seen on this is that Abiy Ahmed, the, the, the biggest sort of BE issue that he has uh, in terms of... Uh, alienating Tigrayan elites is in the military, uh, which much like the civil service is disproportionately highly represented by Tigrayans, especially in the officer class, because they were like the elite micro race or whatever. And right. when, when the Tigrayan People's Front ran Ethiopia, they did it through military might. Yeah. This was not, yeah, this is perhaps why they're doing so well in the war now, because war is their business and it's what they know how to do. So and he sets up a, a sort of Praetorian guard, like a guard just for, like, not just for himself, but like a central pre, uh, prime ministerial guard. And this is really bad for morale because it's it's you know these these Tigrayan leaders are kind of feeling like he's building a second army within the army where they're not getting the prestige yeah, or the power that... or the. It's a thing that uh, rulers who are scared of their armies have been doing for literally centuries. Thousands uh, of Caesar years. Augustus set up um, uh, his own, he set up several different branches of the Roman military to balance out against each other. Uh, and I know, for example, Saudi Arabia does this as well, right? They're very afraid of that the army is going to overthrow them in a coup. So they have the Saudi army, and then they also have the Saudi National Guard. Yeah, which is a completely separate organization. And Iran does this, right? They've got the Iranian yeah. army and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Revolutionary Front, yeah. So so it's a classic move. It kind of backfires. And it might be that it backfires in two ways. So one way that it seems pretty clear at this stage that it backfires is that there's huge defections, especially in the officer class. So it's not like you're losing lots of numbers, but you're losing very important intelligence. Uh, and these guys defect to the Tigrayan side. And not only are you losing sort of smart and respected minds, you are also transferring full-blown knowledge of how your army works to the other side every time a defection like that occurs. So they know the most. Right, I mean, this is this is, and it's kind of difficult to explain how this works um, unless you kind of really look at sort of examples from military history. But in the Second World War, it's arguable. The German army actually wasn't that high quality. Its tanks weren't nearly as good as they're given credit for, particularly in the early war when they had all their big successes. Its logistics weren't that great. Its numbers were pretty big, but they weren't actually that great. Uh, its infantry wasn't you know, amazing. But what it had was the best officers in the world, aggressive, yeah. 
intelligence switched on dudes who knew how to take an opportunity and push something and hold their soldiers together and motivate them and that made all the difference that allowed them to conquer you know most of europe so yeah don't this is like you know, proper chess players going up against a bunch of like golfers exactly dudes who like you know like the, the english english officer corps i mean the english diplomatic corps was taking the whole weekend off the officer corps was still taking sundays off <laughs> yeah, the, uh, one of the, arguably one of the reasons that the uh, British Army hasn't been that good is because all of the good officers have always gone into the Navy. Yeah, which historically makes sense, but it's when you're fighting land battles, not so hot. So, so, but my my supposition, like something I wonder about, and I saw a war correspondent sort of air this question. I thought, yeah, did you asking the right question? I don't know the answer. It's like I wonder also about the misinformation that might have been fed through back to the prime minister. If you've got a semi-reliable half-defecting officer corps, it's not altogether clear. You know, imagine if you're the prime minister, for example, and you hear reports coming through that the Eritreans have broken the northern border and they're massacring uh, Tigrayan civilians and raping women and so on. But then you have two officers that come to you and they say, no, 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 this is propaganda nonsense. They're spreading this to Hana Hana and like they're massacring their own people and you mustn't get fooled by this. And, you you know, it, it'll be hugely costly. It would be a really bad military strategic mistake to now split our forces so that half of them are guarding the border against the Eritreans and then the other half are dealing with the Tigrayan insurgency. You really just need to focus on the issue. And this is a classic war propaganda move. They're just trying to distract you. If you're hearing that from someone in your own officer corps that you trust, uh, even even if you don't really, you know, I think that's the, you might believe them even if you know you shouldn't believe them. You know what I'm saying? It's like a hard, it's like it's a difficult kind of thing to think through in any event. But if your own trusted advisors are kind of saying this, uh, then anyway, the point of this all is, that I mean, there there are so I don't know him setting up his own Praetorian God. I don't know if that's a great idea. Him applying the meritocracy not only to the civil service and the private sector, but also to his military in a in a in a in a swift way, turns out not necessarily to have been the best idea. Given all of the other things, maybe it would have worked out if all the other things had worked out. Um, the COVID is just generally sort of bad stroke of luck, not dealing with it properly by sort of granting the the federal province of Tigray the right to do the elections the way they want them to be done. It seems like, it seems a little bit to me, I don't know, I guess part of, here's, here's maybe part of my interest is that, you know, CNN plays downstairs all the time. And they were Why? celebrating a beer. <laughs> it's not my choice, but it's happening. And so I deal with it. <laughs> And sometimes I deal with it by watching it. And, you know, two years ago, they were like, I don't know, they're such, you know, they've got such a white burden supremacy issue. So it's like, oh, my God, this black person won a Nobel Prize. That's amazing. He's the best person ever. And now they're all like, oh, my God, he won the Nobel Prize for peace. But now he's making war. Uh, that's so embarrassing for the Nobel Peace Committee. And it just seems really reductive. And and the and the turning against Abi seems really irritating and with the possible prospect of Addis Ababa especially being because taken, no one I wish there was some support because no there's one no in, support yeah well this is something that's kind of and I just think uh, and, and just to finish the bit. idea I think he might have just made I think he made some bad calls but I think he made like reasonably bad calls I think it's and that's where the luck thing comes in you know it's like reasonable people would disagree on the evidence at the time what you should do and then if if you throw if you flip tails five times in a row that's really unlucky um it can happen but it's really unlucky and then that seems like a good time to be like you know what this guy what he has done when the going's been good has been really good uh when the going's been bad his his bad calls haven't necessarily been like viciously bad ones like we should still try and work with this guy i feel like the, the i feel like nato members not nato collectively like, i feel like nato members should be thinking about some non-boots on the ground sort of distanced 
support, but they're totally not. That's not going to happen. No one is touching this. Right. This is so. So, uh, one of the problems here is that no one seems to understand what's going on. Part of it is because uh, both Ethiopia and um, and Tig and the Tigrayans are very hostile to journalists. Don't let them come in. And so all you get is these kind of this, you know, the usual ecosystem of kind of UN affiliated NGOs who I don't trust at all, uh, providing little scraps of information to the outside world about what's going on in the situation. So that's a problem. The government like is lying. Just to, just to give a sense of how little we know. So one story is that in the retreat of the formal Ethiopian army, they've sort of been running out of numbers and stuff. So, I mean, they clearly have been commissioning cars and making calls for all able-bodied able men to like, you know, come and join the war effort and whatever. But the story is, you know, they're just sending unarmed, you know, teenagers like cannon fodder into the, into the teeth of Tigrayan fire to, I don't know, basically like a like a like a psychological scorched earth policy. So that even when they have to retreat, people are so angry that their sons and daughters have been killed by the Tigrayans. Right. The, that the Iranians did this in the Iran-Iraq war, actually. Uh, very and, the, thing. and the other story is that the Tigrayans have been doing this. <laughs> the answer is probably they both have. <laughs> or maybe like but it happened know. twice, or maybe it happened twice in two little villages and like 50 people. Okay, it's terrible. But like it's being made out to be like it's like it's, right, it's, the, it's the, like pattern and practice. This is happening all of the time. And and we literally don't know. Yeah, we don't. Like, it's a crazy thing not to know because a lot of people would be involved <laughs> if it happened. Yeah, no, it, it, and it's it's also. I mean, some of it is just the the general weakness of media these days that there's very few on the ground reporters being sent to places. Um, they don't have a sort of hard boiled uh, Gabriel S character being sent in with, with you know with a cigarette I'm in his a, lips and 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 <laughs> I'm you know what softy. I'm talking about. I'm right? softy. You need proper hard boiled guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's just because you haven't gotten practice because there's no because Reuters isn't paying you to go to. Uh, uh, to Mozambique. To if they did, I would. Or Mozambique. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because um, that just that budget isn't available, so there just aren't that many people that can do this kind of thing. Anyway, so that's 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 definitely part of the problem here, um, and, and part of it, I think, is just this kind of inability to grapple with the reality of what's going on in Ethiopia. That you know. I'm not sure, but there is there is a version of the story where you could say that violence against the Tigrayans was necessary, not against the people, but against the Tigrayan people's front, because it was a government that was uh, essentially causing, it, it was holding onto power that it had basically accrued through its military might, and that and it was a breaking the law, that it, yeah. and a patronage network, and that it was threatening to destroy and destabilize the, de the increasingly democratic state that is Ethiopia, um, which is obviously not good. And so, you know, sort of declaring war on them might have been his only option. Yeah. Not a great option, but... No, no, <laughs> better, it's never a great possibly. option. It's, but but it's part of the problem is, you know, because there's so, such bad information about precisely what's going on in their country, it's also, this is a problem that India has as well. Uh, no one studies it. There's lots of people who kind of study China and study, you know, Taiwan and the Middle East, but no, no one studies most of Africa. And some of that, I think, is due to this kind of bigotry of soft expectations, uh, low expectations stuff. But I must say, one of the reasons that capitals don't fall anymore is because the great powers intervene. Uh, so we saw that when ISIS invades, invades Iraq. The French, the Americans, the Iranians, um, everyone basically rushes in troops to, to, to help stop the thing from happening. The reason that Afghanistan happened was because the great powers stopped intervening, America pulled out. Both the Chinese and the Americans are actually set up now to gain an enormous amount of influence in Ethiopia by intervening in this conflict. And neither is particularly interested. Although the Americans should watch their back because if China, I don't know, decided to intervene on Ethiopia's behalf, they would turn Ethiopia from being sort of neutral to being a, a client state, possibly. Uh, and that, I think, would freak out the West. 
so I don't know. It's it's just everyone seems to be putting their fingers in their ears and not really paying attention to this. And I suspect some of it is just simply because um, there's this kind of sort of racist narrative about Africa that it's just a thing where place where people kill each other. It's not taken seriously. Dude, that's and exactly my that, point. It the, yeah. the the racist narrative on CNN has flipped so tragically from the one version of the racist narrative is like pat a black adult on the head like he's a small poodle who's managed to figure out how to walk on two legs okay this like condescending so undeep so unnuanced kind of uh hagiography uh when he when he was doing good to this just brazen uh you know tribalism this is Africa and people are going to be tribalist and like, what else do you expect? You can't really sort out the mess. Like let's just look away. I, I, and I think that's, I think that's the point that filters through to all of the things you're saying. It filters through into the media because look, on the one hand, the media's problem is like, if you're the associated press, you've got the largest press body in the world and you've got the most resources to deploy and unfortunately, you've got editors who kind of you can see through the editorial line. Yeah, have got they, like a yeah they have editors who want you to write the story about uh, the Asian American Muppet rather than the war in Ethiopia. But you also have a readership that is rewarding that, and you don't he's have very interested like, in the Muppet. <laughs> yeah, he's like the Muppet is Mimi. Let's talk about the Muppets. Why are Gabriel and Nicholas talking about people killing each other and, and raping each other and, and children being sort of marched into the face of, you know, automatic rifle fire? And that's gross. That's too much. Come on. This is the 21st century. Let's like, let's worry about like 21st century things like the Muppets. And so it's the public and the public is sort of manipulated by the media, but it sort of has its own role to play in, in its market force. And that filters through to politics. I mean, on top of that, you've got sort of American isolationism being the policy of, of the Biden administration and in some ways the Trump administration, and it's really playing out badly. And you've got Europe to absorb in itself to be much use in anything. And so we are facing, oh man, I've never been to Addis Ababa, but I have such respect. I, You know, Ethiopians in... Johannesburg CBD. It's it's like I've, I do have a bit of a love affair with the the Ethiopians I know in South Africa because of the work ethic, because of their fact that the only jazz restaurant still going that I like visiting in Johannesburg is in Yeovil and it's run by Ethiopians. Because last nightclub I went to in Yeovil is run by an Ethiopian who said, "You know, we were getting problems with the Nigerians, so you know what we did." We got, an, we got an Ethiopian DJ from like 11 till midnight. And then we got a Nigerian DJ from like midnight to one. And then we like played like crosses between their favorite songs from like one till three o'clock. And suddenly we stopped having bar fights. And I was like, oh my God, dude, you are, you are pouring milk into my ears and honey into my mind. This is exactly it. This is how... Joe Hillbrow turns into like another beautiful cosmopolitan space. It's like pragmatic. And I was like, why did you do that? She said, because the bar fights were costing us money. They kept breaking glasses. They kept like flipping. Then we'd have to shut it down and you can't sell liquor for half an hour. You can't. <laughs> like, ah, oh, so good. So good. And dude, it's delicious. Ethiopian food's amazing. I'm not talking about the silly fancy fancy stuff. I'm talking about the like good stuff, you know? That raw meat. Dude, the only place you can like survive eating raw meat in Johannesburg <laughs> is at the Ethiopian restaurants because they kill it that morning and then they put the raw meat on your plate and it's amazing. And I mean, you know, sometimes someone tries to propose marriage to, you know, I've had a few people offer me various sort of cows and cars and and amounts of money to to take my sweet lady away. <laughs> So there's some old school values that need a bit of updating, but 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 on a serious note, you know, I think that I think that Ethiopia is the ground of promise. And I had a really good friend at uh, at Princeton who uh, is Ethiopian, and he was like, I don't know, he was always wearing like a gold ring, and he was very well spoken, and he was the most charismatic dude in the Ivy Club, which is the most old money club in the, in the, in the school. 
and he really he i mean he really was old money and it was so interesting hanging out with a dude who's like you know fifth generation old money aristocrat from ethiopia and i was like dude what don't i know about ethiopia that i need to know and he was like the first thing you need to know is it's it's so it looks so much like south africa you think it's like a desert you think it's like starving people everywhere it's beautiful it's like you know savannah bleeding into like semi-tropical deliciousness it's a lot of it's great i mean there's like like with you guys there's karoo parts but there's a lot of parts that are like in Pumala, like kzn or whatever and and just that at a geographic level kind of stonked me um and you know the last great journalist in ethiopia was richard kapushinsky the greatest soviet journalist and arguably the greatest european journalist of the 20th century his his book on haile selassie oh my lord so good so good but the point is as much history as there is to tap into as much modern commercial vibrancy as there is to admire and 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 buy into as much democratic progress has been made in the last few years there's this there's this crown jewel of hope there's this interesting thing that as soon as it goes a little bit wrong gets chalked up to being another failed african state another tribalist quagmire another thing to look away from and and i just yeah. i just i just makes me want to spit like yeah. it's flipping important what's happening there yeah and no, i agree with that i agree with that pretty much completely um it really is i mean you know it has this long history of being the center of african civilization uh it's there there was an ancient roman historian he said there's three great powers in the world in the world and those are uh rome china and ethiopia <laughs> and um i think in a very real way ethiopia has the ability to to as you as you said at the beginning uh shine the light forward for the rest of africa about how to do things and they were doing it right they were privatizing state-owned enterprises they used to basically have a communist economy and they started privatizing stuff and the fact that they are uh, that they that they are in danger of going backwards, and I, I fear that if the Tigrayans win the war and take over government, oh my god, dude, that that they will very possibly reverse all of that, and it'll be a complete disaster. Oh my god, dude, if they win the so, war, I can't see. Oh my god, they're gonna throw. You know, it's a hundred million people live in that country. Do you know how many refugees they're gonna generate, and that's gonna destabilize every country around them it's going to embolden the worst elements of south sudan sudan it's going to make the eritreans feel very trigger happy it's going to make further into the actual middle east it's going to make problems it is sending the wrong message to everyone for yeah. for addis to fall yeah yeah no exactly and the fact that the outside world is sort of going ethiopia where's that again Dude, this is the South Africa of like, you know, like north of the of the of the equator. It's like Nigeria and yeah. Ethiopia are like the two most important countries, in my opinion. And and they both have a lot going for them. Ethiopia's advantage is that because it's had this like, you know, Ethiopia has a tradition of a much more centralized state. And so its problems are very different to Nigeria, where it's like mafiosa stuff, and like you know, it's Nigeria is more like it's closer to like the libertarians' nightmare. Okay, you have no central coordinated power, so now you have to deal with that problem. Whereas Ethiopia is like, okay, you had a terrible socialist imposition, and that dates back. By the way, you know, Haile Selassie was like the 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 tsar of Ethiopia for the longest time, yes, and presided over the green famines. You know, this beautifully agriculturally productive place where people were then dying so much that you get the image that uh, Ethiopia is like a desert where people starve. But part of the reason that that happened was again, the same thing. Like Haile Selassie was a darling of the West. He was, he was admired for presiding over this country with his proud history. And he sort of made the right noises yeah. and it was all very yeah, interesting. fought the Italians during world war two and his country had been one of the first victims of fascism. And yet there wasn't enough interest to dig deep and like see how are things working out. And Kapuscinski sort of hints at the version of counterfactual history, according to which it might have been the case that if that if Selassie had just gotten some support in the form of criticism when he was doing wrong, 
that he might have been able to steer the ship. You might have had that incentive to steer the ship. Instead, he's lulled into complacency by this paternalistic patting on the head that's just so flippin' deadly. And then it gets to the point where things are going so badly wrong that the criticism comes in this sort of nihilistic, well, what could you ever have expected in any event kind of form? And that's complete turnoff. And then he sort of redoubt, you know, it becomes a, 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 a game of how can you cling on to power rather than how can you make being in charge more worth it by by making things better anyway nick i've got to say we usually run an hour and a half but i really can't do that this time so we're drawing uh to yeah. to, to the last moment so i want to quickly say my i want to quickly say my spiel about russia my spiel about russia is this Ninety thousand elite mechanized infantry on the border of the ukraine my bet is that if the russians find the prod and the gap lining up the stick and the carrot both 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 doing the worst kind of work two, two kinds of strokes of bad luck they could invade and not only end the conflict in the donbass the war in the donbass the actual war in the donbass that has been ongoing since 2013 or thereabouts they could march on kiev that is a small but significant to consider possibility and it is it the, I mean, then you know that Pax Americana is a new kind of thing. The 21st century new warfare is a new kind of thing. That is just that is just a huge blow. You know, Crimea is like a little thing. Abkhazia, no one can find it on a map. Georgia's a uh, state in America uh, before it's a, a country in Europe. You know, the, the, the kinds of the kinds of expansion that Russia has undertaken have largely been sort of truly marginal and much as people don't like Sneaky, to hear it, opportunistic, yeah. quite popular amongst the peoples that have been occupied. You know, so it hasn't been like taking people who don't want to be occupied. Let me tell you, Addis Ababa does not want to be occupied. Kiev does not want to be occupied. Past the Donbass, once you get into Ukraine, it is Putin is no longer a popular entity. He's very popular in Crimea. So is his party and so is Russia. And you can see this in the language breakdown. You can see this in the polling done by independent pollsters. And you can very much see this in the elections. But they, Russia's in a position where it might go from kind of stretching the borders to line up with people where people kind of want them to be, which is sort of a thing that's acceptable in the case of Kosovo, definitely a thing that's acceptable in the case of, you know, most people's theory of, of uh, sovereign, uh, 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 the sovereignty of peoples, uh, but is totally, totally against the grain when it comes to conquest. What is it going to take for that to have to happen? I think it takes the following misidentifying why it is that Russia is doing it in the first place. Russia is trying to sponsor, you know, uh, mad uh, moves by the Belarusians to inject thousands, only a few thousand sort of uh, refugees into Poland. It's, it's amassing its infantry on the border of Ukraine. It doesn't care about either of these things. What it really cares about is the, is the North is, is its second pipeline circumventing the Ukraine because it's sick and tired of dealing with uh, a, a hostile rival on its borders that is also paying 13 to 18 billion dollars in royalties to every year for doing nothing. The Ukrainians do nothing and they get lots of money. I mean, they get as bad as much money. We're getting a once-off $180 billion green investment into ESCOM. Let's see if that actually happens. But if it does, it'll be huge. It'll be a fifth of ESCOM's net asset value. And that's a one-off payment. The Ukraine is getting more than that every single year, and they are in an active conflict with Russian allies in the Donbass. I'm not making a moral judgment here, but I'm saying that from any real politic position, it's completely reasonable for the Russians not to want all of their oil or most of their oil or even any of their oil to be going through the Ukraine with the Ukraine's, Ukrainians drawing royalties. So they want the second pipeline to be opened. The, U, the, the EU and the UK have been going through a complete nightmare of communication where they pretend that Russia is the reason that the gas prices are climbing, triggering inflation, making that, you know, America's step out of the coronavirus uh, pandemic is kind of as good as it could be. They've got some inflation baked in with their ma major uh, uh, spending rollouts, but honestly, inflation for a short period of time is not the worst thing that it could be. The package that they passed was the smaller version of the package. Honestly, not the worst version of things that it could be. If they passed the 3.7 trillion dollar package, well, uh, then America. They still will be say doing they're going to try. Right, they still say they're going to try past that. By the way, I don't think they yeah, will. But it's worth. I don't think it's they worth will. thinking about and that. It's worth thinking about. But America's doing it really well. Their GDP growth is showing it. Their jobs numbers are showing it. Their marginal propensity to spend 
uh, uh, bailout money that ordinary helicopter money that ordinary Americans have gotten are showing exactly the best hopes of Paul Krugman and uh, allaying the worst fears of Larry Summers. America is actually in a bizarrely good place on that front, and on so many other fronts, it's not doing so well. Europe is in the opposite position. This is the worst time in the world to have a major fuel supply problem. It's even worse for the UK because it's compounding on top of the supply chain disruptions. On top of the sort of new asset allocation problems, it's 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 <laughs> got Brexit, which would have always had problems. And the pitch was always going to be: if you can make Brexit work for the first five years, then you can put the anti the Remainers to bed, and then you can keep making it work for the next ten years. And then it's just a thing that happened, and it worked, and you've made it work. But if you can't make it work for the first five years, you're going to have the Remainers keep lobbying forever until they get a second referendum vote. And as long as that's a viable prospect. There's always going to be reasons for big businesses that are sympathetic to it ideologically and also who think they can make more money by reclimbing into the EU because of the kinds of regulation concessions that they could do by get by doing so. This is really the worst time for the UK to be having a major fuel cost increase, and they're suffering it, and they will not recognize what the problem is. The messaging coming out of the Foreign Office, the messaging coming out of Boris Johnson is that the Russians are elevating fuel prices. That is only half of the story. If they opened up Nord Stream 2, fuel prices would immediately plummet. The Russians would get what they want. The only people who would suffer are the Ukrainians. And I am very sympathetic to their plight. But as a matter of realpolitik, I cannot see how this makes sense for anyone else, especially when what the Ukrainians might get if Europe refuses, if the Germans refuse to um, open up those pipelines is a full-throated invasion. And this is the BATNA that Russia is offering. It's saying, if all you really care about is the Ukrainians, because you guys are going to do better if you open the pipeline, we're going to do better if you open the pipeline, the only people who are going to do worse is the Ukrainians. Well, here's your best alternative to the negotiated agreement. The Ukrainians are going to do even worse because we are poised to write their army. And they'll write their army. They could write their army without even invading Kiev. Mm. So at this moment, so, I think that people so should be I think, yeah, more sympathetic I, I, and nice to Russia than they're being. And that puts me in a very strange position because it makes me sound like I'm a Putin fan. <laughs> but there I've laid it. Yeah. So we don't have proper time to get into this now. But um, I think I think the Russian army might not actually be as strong as everyone thinks it is. And the Ukrainians have been getting better. I, I I think that uh, uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was some great ancient general or something. who said that you know, like war is war is always about rolling the dice. <laughs> and so uh, I think the Russians could be making a very big mistake if they do try using. Dude, the Ukrainians have been doing a, well for the last while because of drones that they bought from Turkey a while back that have been knocking the guys in the Donbass out. If this levels up, neither neither yeah. armies are no, no, experienced no, no. at the level up level. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But that but that's exactly why you don't see. So something I don't really have, we don't really have time to talk about. But in the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, what happened to Armenia's massive tank army? A lot of it Russian made, or all of it Russian made, was completely destroyed by Israeli produced, uh, Azerbaijani operated drones, and that's actually why Azerbaijan won that little war. Uh, so we are entering, it's it's not like, you know how before the First World War, everyone was like, oh, you see, it's all going to be a war of maneuver and it's all going to be about offense and attack and it's all going to be about flanking people and having superior morale. And then it turned out that it was all about digging holes in the ground and shooting people with machine guns. And yeah. that miscalculation caused, well, you know, World War One. <laughs> If you had said to any of the politicians or generals before World War One, here's what the war is actually going to look like, not a single one of them would have been keen on it. Yeah, excepting maybe for the Serbian, the, the Slavian race nationalists. 20% of, of the Serbian population died in that war. I mean, it was, they, I think, as a percentage of their population, had the worst outcome of the whole lot. So even, they did. even the mad Serbians might have been a little, a little bit like, uh, I don't know. No, they were, <laughs> dude, they literally their greatest hero was a suicide mission. They they loved. They started with the kamikaze idea. By the way, the only <laughs> other guys who would have liked it 
would have been the Bolsheviks because they were the great winners from World. Yeah, well, of course, the Bolsheviks would have liked it. That's because the Bolsheviks are evil. But anyway, blood, uh, we don't have any more time. Is, we must, we must, we must stop now. So, so I'm going to make uh, a one-word recommendation. Richard Kapuscinski, uh, his book on Heine Selassie, what is it called? The Emperor. It is sublime. It is entirely... Okay, 95% of it is just transcribed interviews that he makes with members of the palace. It's so good. People who had never had a chance to speak to anyone in the press finally hiding in little grovels, in little in little hovel holes in the ground. He goes around for months and months. He finds them and he asks them, what was it like? And tell me your story. So good. Okay, that's my record. Uh, so I guess my recommendation is since Poland is currently defending the borders of Europe from Eastern aggression, no stranger to, uh, no stranger, this isn't a, a strange phenomenon for Poland that we're doing for centuries. <laughs> uh, you should read the, the Witcher series or play one of the Witcher video games uh, because uh, I wouldn't, I would say stay away from the, from the Netflix series because it's not very well done. Um, but this is probably Poland's most famous cultural export. So that's my recommendation. Anyway, that's all the time we have for. So thank you, everyone. And uh, keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr. Grr, grr.